Our goal hasn't changed since 2009. We support, promote, engage, and inspire the arts community by igniting the ghost light that shines on the stages of the up-and-coming, the unsung heroes, the brilliant writers, and the dynamic designers. Stay tuned. Rep Radio is on the air. Welcome to Rep Radio. I'm your host, Darnell Radford, and today I am in Rittenhouse, right? Uh, and, are, and I'm here with Matt Decker, uh, who just directed Peter and the Starcatcher at Theater Horizon. Matt, welcome back to Rep Radio. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, on my way over here, I had realized that around this time last year, we sat down and chatted. Probably for the first time. Yeah. Uh, that was the beginning of season eight. So now here we are at the beginning of season nine. So maybe we can make this an annual affair. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had a lot of fun at Peter and the Starcatcher. I was fortunate enough to uh, be there opening night. There's so many familiar faces in this cast. And, uh, and seeing it uh, in a different scale I thought was really interesting. So... Um, I, I thought it'd be really good to kind of talk about that in, um, in case uh, we have listeners out there who saw the Broadway performance and then came here and said, there's something here that I don't remember. And why don't I remember it? Or, oh, I just love this one. I love this version better. Or I love it seeing it through this lens. So I thought it'd be nice to talk about um, yeah, so tell us about Peter and the Starcatcher. <clears throat> well, the story is uh, about, um, it's kind of the origin story of, of how Peter Pan becomes Peter Pan. And um, y it's based on a book uh, that was actually, that was written by um, Dave Barry, who is like a humorist, a columnist, and he's a, a humor, you know, he writes comedy books and essays. And so... Um, it's it tells the story of how Peter became Peter Pan, and it takes you through um, that Peter in this version was an orphan that was abandoned by his parents or separated from his parents. You actually don't know how he lost his parents, and he um, meets he's being sort of shipped away and carted and going to be sent to this horrible king overseas in, from England and he meets this young girl named Molly and they go on this big adventure on the high seas basically and you kind of learn through the story you know um, how he learns through Molly's example to become a leader and become someone that's empathetic and has compassion and um, and uh, you know and, and cares about the people that are around him and so it's, it's a really I really think it's a really beautiful story and um so, but going to your question about like how we're doing it and it, so this, so basically that's the book, right? And then the book was adapted into a play with music that was done at New York theater workshop in the like, um, 2010 or 2011, I think. And then it eventually moved to Broadway. Um, 
And when you get the script of this play, it's very vague. It doesn't tell you, other than the events that happen and how they happen with the lines and the dialogue and the narration, it doesn't really tell you how to do it. Hmm. It just gives you plot points and action. And this is a script where, like, on each page, there's about 17 events that occur yeah. that are pretty <laughs> massive, like a shipwreck, a hurricane, um, a, a guy getting thrown overboard, a girl rescuing him. Like it's a lot on a on a page. Okay, we're doing this all with sheets. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and it just says it just is kind of like go, you know. And so um, I knew that when we the designer designers and I when we approached this, we kind of wanted to figure out how we were going to tell it and how we were going to tell it. Not only like with, with a version that we felt creatively excited about, but also like how are we going to tell it in Theater Horizon Space, mm-hmm. which is a small space. It's 123 seats. It's very intimate. It does not have the sort of largest, um, massive quality that I think a lot of people um, have presented this play in. You know, like on Broadway or um, like the Walnut Street. It did it in their house here in Philadelphia, which is quite larger. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we really needed to sort of figure out how we were going to bring it into our space and. And another thing that I know that I kind of wanted to do with it was that it's typically also done, it's a cast, we are doing it with a cast of 12, and um, it's typically done with all men and one woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, I, I knew I didn't want to do that. There was, there's no, you know, I, I couldn't see in the script a reason why it had to be done that way. Yeah. Since everybody's playing a bunch of different parts and it's, it's a fairy tale, and you know, I think that there were many ways to sort of approach the casting of it. So... We have cast uh, men and women and non-binary actors in in these roles, and so Mm -hmm. we wanted to come up with a version of the story that honored our ensemble and also honored the space of Theater Horizon. And so we ended up setting it in the basement of a church. And so um, as the play starts, you kind of see the the characters, the actors, they're playing, like um, Johnny Hobbs is playing the reverend of the church, and um, the the actors that play the Lost Boys are sort of coming into the church for a meal, mm-hmm. and so they so it's you're watching this um, community that doesn't really know each other. I guess turn into a community by the end yeah, and yeah. tell the story together, and that mirrors what what kind of happens with with Peter and and you know the family that he finds as the story goes on. So. Mm-hmm. That was kind of our way inside of it, and that and that really inspired a lot of choices within the play, within the production, I should say. Yeah. Um, when uh, what was your what was your first impression of the piece? Did you get to see it on Broadway? No, I never have seen it. I, I never have seen it. Yeah. Uh, I so we're um, seeing this through a fresh lens. Yeah. I mean, I I remember when it was in New York, and I remember seeing like an excerpt of it on the Tony Awards. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and um, I I think that I read it when it first came out. I remember reading the script. Um, but no, I've never seen it. I didn't see it in a, a couple productions have happened in the Philadelphia area, and I didn't see those <laughs> either. Um, I don't know. I'm, I, I sometimes I like to see, like, to know everything about yeah. a play before I do it, and I like to do my research and you know go to Lincoln Center and watch the archives and or you know whatever. Um, and sometimes I I just don't. And I think with with this, I just uh, felt that um, that I kind of got the idea of what people what it's, what's how it's typically done because it's typically done in very Victorian clothing, Victorian era clothing, and. Um, it feels very British, you know, uh, and, uh, I knew we weren't going to do that. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't, 
it just kind of didn't make sense to to explore other versions yeah. since ours was going to yeah. be so different. And it's uh, it's it's localized. Yeah. Um, this your your uh, your telling of it does feel very local. It feels like we could cross the street and and go into the basement and this happened. <laughs> that was totally the idea. We wanted to put it in in the in the same room with the ensemble, with the members of the ensemble, and with the audience, and so that they could really feel like they were watching a, a version of this that um, you know was really that that came out of people that you know you would pass on the street or that you might go to church with or whatever. I mean, like at that that or, or that's really kind of what we wanted to do. So I'm glad that 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 came across. Yeah. Um, there's, there's many pieces like this that have, that have the layers where on the surface it, it might feel very whimsical and sort Mm -hmm. of, uh, kid friendly, but has a lot of, uh, has a lot of, uh, dialogue that is very smart and very much like the, this is for the adults in the room and all the silly, uh, slapsticky, uh, you know, moments tend to be for the kids to kind of keep their eyes up here, you know, sort of. Um, but I, I think here, there, you guys struck a really great balance with all of that. Because uh, it feels a lot like, well, I mean, it feels like children's theater. It feels like puppetry. I mean, it just kind of feels like that they're looking at this, this was a basement, you know, wasn't meant to have all the, everything they're working with was not meant to be what, it ends up becoming, um, you know, using ladders for height and, and using all these crafts that are already in the room to kind of, uh, uh, create these certain moments and, uh, transform the characters and everything. Um, all that makes for a whole lot of fun to kind of figure out what on this set is going to be used for what. Right. right. (laughs) Yeah. That, that, that feel, it's like imaginative play. It's like, it's like being a kid again. And I think that, you know, the story is the story that most of us encountered when we were children. It made sense to me that these, you know, these, these people, these members of this, of this church basement would tap back into that energy, you know, and grab a, you know, a, um, a a flashlight and make it into a lantern or whatever. I mean, all those things that they end up doing in the show. Yeah. That felt kind of organic. And that was a big goal of Chris Haig who designed the set. Um, and Scott McMasters who did the props. Like we were constantly talking about like, well, what can we have in there? You know, and Jill Keyes who did the costumes, like what, what could be in the space that you would buy could end up being, you know, sort of like changed and altered to become, Mm -hmm you know, um, the mermaid costumes, for instance, for act two or whatever. I mean, that, that's, that's really fun. I I love that kind of theater. And there's so much transformation happening, but the, the set for the most part doesn't really change. It's like tables and chairs move around, but you know, there's no wall that kind of like transforms and now we're in a totally different world per se. Um, but everything in its place becomes, you know, it takes on another dimension, which is really cool to watch unfold. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that was fun to find. And, um, you know, there's one little thing that the set does, um, in act two that Chris Haig doesn't want to ever talk about. He wants <laughs> to see it. So I won't talk about it, but there's one, there's one little surprise that act that does happen in act two. And that was a conscious choice. We wanted to keep it. We wanted to keep the transformation, um, to, you know, of the ordinary objects to mirror 
you know, Peter's transformation, what Peter kind of goes through. And, mm-hmm. and that was a big, um, that was, you know, that was something that was sort of focused on. And, and, and also the story is so complicated. Like there's so yeah. much plot in this story, like so much happens. They really didn't leave anything out when they adapted this book yeah. for the play. Like really chock, it's chock full of plot. And so we kind of knew that we had to keep, um, the devices through which, um, you know, we, 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 you know, the ship breaks in half. So we really wanted that to be simplistic, you know, being too many people were thrown overboard. So we wanted that to be a simple gesture. We just yeah. kind of used jump rope to represent the edge of the, you know, the edge of the boat, just because the audience has to focus on so much mm-hmm. that then I felt like in, especially in our space to throw massive set pieces on top of that, I think you would have lost some of the story. Yeah. Know? Yeah, definitely. Um, so Let's dive into the characters. Sure. Um, so we have uh, uh, we have Boy, mm-hmm. who's not quite Peter yet. He doesn't even have a name. <laughs> he has no he doesn't name. Doesn't have a name. Uh, tell us where he is in the beginning of the show. Uh, well, what the one of my favorite things about this this version is that you know Peter, like I mentioned earlier, he's an orphan and he has nobody in his life. He has he's never really grown up with any type of love mm-hmm. and and care and so at the beginning of the story he he doesn't really have a lot of trust for anybody especially grown ups who have kind of a, sort of abused him his entire life he doesn't talk a lot um he doesn't really get along with the other two kids that he um you know lives alongside in the orphanage uh, and that's Ted and Prentice who um you know are they all become the lost boys together. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he's really withdrawn and he's really suffering just, I think a lot of trauma and, um, um, neglect. And so, uh, and he does, he, like I meant, he doesn't speak much at all at the top of the, of the story. And it really isn't until he meets Molly, um, who's played by Leah Cato that, um, he's shown some, compassion and he's shown some empathy and I think through um you know she was that her character has been lucky enough to be raised by uh, you know in a privileged world and her father loves her very much and takes care of her and um and has shown is taught instilled in her a value system to be kind to others and and I think that that really you know it really changes the way Peter sees the world and enables him to grow into this hero that we know. And I mean, and that makes so much sense. I mean, every kid needs to be loved and every kid needs to be shown, um, you know, compassion. And, and so that really moves me. And I, and I, and I really, that's what really drew me to want to tell the story. And, and, and it, and I feel that that is also, you know, represented in the other two lost boy characters, Ted and Prentice. I mean, because Molly shows them uh, as well, a lot of, a lot of care and, and becomes almost like a surrogate parent for them Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, and to, and they, they are forever changed by that. Yeah. This, uh, the story of Peter Pan in itself takes on, it, it has a, it has a, a flamboyance about itself anyway, where it's, it, it always seems like every telling of the story is trying to be ambiguous. Mm-hmm. You know, Peter Pan is, is mostly, is, or, or most often played by a female. And, uh, so the thought of, um, of, incorporating uh more gender and gender non-binary in it 
how did you come up with this dynamic? I mean, this fit. I mean, was it just in casting and you're like, you're great, I know one for you, or were there specific choices for the the actors playing specific roles? Well, I mean, that's a great question, and I think that I think that it it just was a goal of the production. It was a goal of me and Amanda Morton, the music director, and Nikki Kuzno, the choreographer. You know, we just wanted to have a wide spectrum of people in this room telling the story. And so um, it became less of like, okay, well, we want, you know, Alf to be played by a woman or, you know, we, we, we could throw non-binary actors anywhere. It didn't, didn't really have that strategy. Yeah. And I didn't, it just, it really did come down to... Um, what actor came through the room and, and connected mm-hmm. to the role and brought the role to life. So we kind of didn't really put, place limits. Like I should say, we didn't place gender limits yeah. on, um, on the auditioners, you know, uh, the audition actually was kind of like a group audition and we brought people in and we said, okay, everybody, you're going to have 20 minutes to take this portion of the script, cast yourself in something and, and, and tell the story. Wow. And so we really were looking for people that were going to bring <laughs> commitment and clarity to the storytelling and, and to take the storytelling seriously. And that was kind of what we were searching for. And then other people were brought in for specific roles, but um, that was kind of the, the starting point. So it really just, it really just was like, oh, wow. Like Maggie Johnson's Ted was so... Um, heartbreaking and lovely and and, yeah. and and they have a real connection to that character and it just it was like great that's where that's where they will go then um so yeah and and, and, and the same with peter and i think <clears throat> i think you know uh, yeah i think that's that's that <laughs> yeah uh ted was definitely fun to follow mm-hmm. because the dialogue leads you to believe that Ted would be a little bit more jovi- jovial or sort of jolly. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it just turns out to be sort of a, 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 you know, a person growing into their own and just, you know, consum- consuming on the verge of sort of gluttony. But the circumstance doesn't really allow for that. It just sort of has... Uh, there's just sort of a wish for for gluttony most of the yeah, time. Yeah, there, there. Yes, there are a lot of jokes in the script that that would make you want to want to cast a, a person of larger stature in that role because mm-hmm. you'd be sort of. I mean, for lack of a better word, they're fat shaming jokes. Yes, and yes. Um, and and I guess when I read it, I was like, well, wow, you know, um, this this kid is is malnourished. I mean, this kid is not being fed a proper meal by the orphanage, you know, guy mm-hmm. Grempkin and, and, um, you know, they're really trying to, uh, they're so hungry because they're, they're really trying to sort of fill <laughs> this void that's in their, yeah. their, mm-hmm. their stomach and also the, their, their heart. And, and so Maggie just really connected to that. And I think brings it to life in a way that you really believe that, that, um, this poor kid is just so, so hungry, <laughs> you know? Um, but but um, that leads me to go back to just a, a, something I was just thinking about as we were talking about that because I think that there's another really beautiful thing that I like about this story is that um, you know it explains why these three kids want, would want to be kids forever and it and it doesn't have anything to do with being sort of frivolous or um, immature. It actually has a lot more to do with the fact that like because they have been basically treated so horribly and put to work and done all these, 
you know, these grueling tasks at the orphanage and now they're being sold to a king that's going to put them through more grueling tasks. They've never actually had the chance that so many of us are lucky to have to live yeah. that life of, of free and freedom and innocence. And mm-hmm. so the, the fact that they now get to do that on Neverland, like that to me is, it's such a, I don't know. It feels a more like a no, noble reason about why they'd want to, they'd want to be kids forever than just never wanting to grow up. You know, yeah. they actually don't want to grow up and become the people that have abused them. You mm-hmm. know, they want to stay They and they want to experience that, that childhood, you know, that everybody should have. And I think everybody can resonate with a, with a, if they, if there is a sense, if there is any moment of loss, in their lives or any kind of um, uh, sort of a holding back of who you are. Uh, this, this need or this want to be able to live in that moment forever is definitely um, something that can resonate on so many different levels. I mean, when you're thinking about, you know, if you, if you grew up uh, if you grew up in a strict household where you couldn't really be a child and then you get to the point uh, of your life where you have total control of it, where everything, every decision you make is yours for the most part and you tend to hold on. I, I think it's what I think it's what maybe kind of holds us to all the uh, moments and bits of nostalgia that we hold on to, like video games and cartoons and all those things we can't seem to let go of, I guess. And maybe it's not because we were, uh, that we didn't get the opportunity to experience and kind of live with those growing up. But uh, those are just those happy moments that we don't want to let go of. Yeah, I mean, that's why we keep bringing back all of these movies again and we were making yeah. these television shows. I think you're right. And I think that, I think <clears throat> art really, um, can awaken that in us in a beautiful way. And I mean, I think I've talked to so many people that have mentioned that this, the Peter Pan fairy tale, like means so much to them because of, um, who read it to them when they were a kid, you know, whether it be the grandparent or their, or their parent or their older brother or sister, or, you know, who they first watched a film version of it with, or, you know, it, it, it I mean, these, the reason that I think we keep you know, we were always drawn to these stories that have been with us for years and years is because of that very thing you're talking about, that it does, it, it, it feels like home. It feels yeah, like yeah. a, a, you know, a part of our, our soul. <laughs> uh, this piece, uh, it, re- it reminds me a lot of, uh, of all the Jeffrey Maguire books, the wicked, and, uh, um, oh, now of course I'm going to draw a blank on the other, the other pieces. The yeah. parts in that trilogy. Oh, and it's like can be holding son, on of a, son, son of a, of a witch, right? Son of a witch, <laughs> yes. And then, uh, but, and, and also on television, um, thinking about like Once Upon a Time and uh, to a darker extent, like a Riverdale. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, where sure. taking these familiar characters and, and kind of putting a what if or just saying, what if you look, what if you observe their, you know, the before moment? Or what if the after moment looked like this, you know, um, even to, uh, even thinking back as a, in, into the play, like dog sees God, yeah. where it's taking those characters that we've all grown up with and it's not a holiday without peanuts characters, but now we're seeing these characters like, what if they were just real and they grew up 
And this is how they approached life in general. Um, I enjoy those stories, and I think that there is definitely a hunger for all of that, too, because of so much of that retelling on TV. I guess it's, I, I, I guess you can be critical and say that it's like, has something to do with rights and the fact that they're in the public to, a lot of that stuff is in the public domain now so you can kind of you know play with it as you will but uh but uh approaching something that we've known so well in a uh, you know giving it a different take or an, a before moment like this piece does is definitely a fun thing to yeah see. I think a great story is a great story or a great character is a great character. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, I think that when those characters are written well, there's so much to mine. There's so much mm -hmm. to explore. I mean, I, you know, we've been, we're still doing Shakespeare. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. though there's still, you know, there's still so many ways to tell those, those really great stories. And I think that that's, that's partly why I, you know, um, there's these, they have such popularity. There's, there's, there's always another way in, you mm -hmm. know, another way to explore it. Uh, let's talk about um, directing Black Stash. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. Because uh, Black Stash is, uh, you know, he's such a dynamic character. He's the, the villain for the most part. But, uh, but there's a lot of improvisation in this character. How much of, how much of Black Stash is on the page? <clears throat> a lot of black sashes on the page. Um, not to discredit Trey Lifers who plays yeah, him. Yeah. In his, I think he's brilliant in this. But um, but uh, you no, know, uh, the 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 script. You know, we've talked about. I, I feel like we've talked about the sort of dark elements of the script. But there is this sort of British panto or British music hall vibe that's mm -hmm. really within the story, and a lot of that lies in Black Stash. You know, he has so many. He has a great love of language, but never gets a turn of phrase correct, you know, <laughs> to save his life. And I mean, he's he he approaches, you know, everything with such bravado and demands such respect. But he he's he's an idiot. I mean, yeah. in a lot of ways, he's a buffoon. Um, so I mean, on the page, a lot of that is there, and I think um, Trey. Uh, really, you know, took that and ran with it and found his way inside, um, of this guy. And I think that, but I think what's actually amazing and what he, Trey and I talked about so much in this process is that, you know, yes, he, he, he does silly things and he makes mistakes all the time and we laugh at his sort of his idiocy, but this is also a pirate. This is also a guy that was, you know, sailing this season, killing people and stealing mm -hmm. and, and yeah. doing, you know, and so the danger has to exist in his portrayal or we'll never, we won't actually care about his quest. Yeah. And, and so, um, so that was something that, um, you know, Trey really, I think, um, does really well. Like there are moments when he, he really does change the air and he does scare, scare the room. And, and that's, I think necessary to the character succeeding. Um, but I mean, directing Black Sash, I mean, Trey is a clown. He's like, <laughs> you know, he has so many years of experience of devising his own work and um, has, you know, been in such a wide range of, of different types of theater. And, uh, you know, he's extremely smart. And um, it was really just kind of watching him figure out how to wear this guy. And, and I would just kind of help him edit and 
and throw a suggestion here and there where it made sense. And there are specific moments in the script where Black Sash is allowed to improvise, you know. Um, there's this tantrum that he throws when Lord Astor won't give him what he wants, where Trey, you know, he's a master at this. He just, like, throws something out, and he sees how the room responds, and he, and he keeps going. And, um, you know, what, what impressed me so much about watching him um, and Mel Crodman, who plays Smee, they're yes. quite a duo together <laughs> in this, um, is that both of them have a fearlessness about their, 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 their acting and they just try something. And if it fails, who cares, you know, mm-hmm. like, and they move on and they keep, they keep going. And that, that's, that's the ultimate comedian. That's the ultimate clown, right? Yeah. Like the clown, they just keep trying until they find the laugh or find the rhythm or find the flow. And, um, it's really admirable to watch. And so I would kind of say that, that works. That works great. Keep doing that. And maybe we don't need this, you know? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of stuff ended up on the, on the chopping block, but it, it was really, it was just quite fun to watch them yeah. together. I, I love how black stash sets up, um, <clears throat> sets up the world in a sense of, uh, let's create a playtime that never ends, mm. you know, in establishing, uh, their roles where this is sort of a, even though it's not addressing the audience at this moment, this is sort of a breaking of the fourth wall where, where we're really, um, discovering how this story was crafted yes. uh, so that yeah. it's going to be the adventures of Peter Pan and, uh, you know, uh, tales of Neverland yeah. forever and ever, forever and ever. And yeah. I, I love when, uh, I think that's what I what I like about the stories that I tend to consume, not just on stage, but but um, in media as well. They all uh, the hero or whoever we've established to be the hero or the anti-hero always keeps their villain at arm's length. It's like uh, I'm just trying to keep the villain in line, not necessarily get the villain out of the picture. Uh, which is a little bit of a questionable thing. I think if you were, if you were looking at it in like real life, if we had, if we had superheroes in real life, it's like, why can't you just resolve this instead of just saying you won this round (laughs) (laughs) and they'll be back. Okay. And so, so let's build that skyscraper all over again. And by the time, uh, uh, you come back to tear it down, we'll be back here (laughs) having the same argument. Didn't I tell you? Not to touch this skyscraper. <laughs> right. Or, 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 you know, the hero throws the villain in jail and then the villain just escapes and they start all yeah, over again. And, sure. and they kind of know what's going to happen right. too. It's like, uh, if, if you could really strip away and pull up the, the real life moment, there's, there's probably two people who work at the police station who are saying like, you know, he's going to get out of here. Right. I mean, <laughs> I just hope it doesn't happen on my ship because the last guy died. So, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yes, you're so right. And, and Stash, you know, Stash, the first time we meet Stash, he does say, like, all I really I thought you could be, the, he says as an Astor, I thought you could be the hero to my villain, the person that would, you know, that, that I could finally, you know, meet my match against. Mm-hmm. And that, and that I, you're, I, I'm so glad you noticed that, because I, I do love that element of the story, the sort of self-awareness that the story kind of has, where he says, like, no, finally, now we're forever united, Peter, you and I, we're going to, this is going yeah. to be... And um, he, he was in search of an adversary. Right, exactly. And as 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 you're mentioning, as every great character in a yeah. story needs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and I love the I love the nod to that 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 you know these characters will kind of exist forever for mm-hmm. future generations to come. And um, there's just a, a great a great um, 
comment on the power of like a great, of a story surviving, you know? Yeah. And, and when you walk out of the theater, there's so many ways to see that as a metaphor for life too. There's so much that we just try to keep at bay just for, for the time being, it seems. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we're looking up again 10 years later and saying, I thought we solved this problem. No, we didn't. It's still here. <laughs> here it is again. But we'll be back. We're going to wait till 15 years and then we'll pretend it's a new thing again <laughs> or we'll carry it like it's new. Like we've thrown out the blueprint of how we, how we kept this at bay last time. We just start all over again. Um... So, Theater Horizon works really hard to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to experience the arts. And uh, for this production, uh, you will have a relaxed performance. And uh, talk to me about that. Yes, thank you for asking about that, first of all, because it's something that we're very passionate about. Um, but at Theater Horizon, we have um, an autism drama program that has been running for... 11 years now and um, it is for it's a program that's held on Saturday afternoons and it's for uh, people ages 10 to 30 and they can come if you're on any you know any um, level of the autism spectrum you can come and uh, and have acting class basically and also they also write plays like the older the older students write have been writing plays over the past mm -hmm. couple of years um, so uh, we've developed this really wonderful community of um, you know, I shouldn't say it's only children with or people with autism. It's also anybody that has any sort of sensory sensory disorders. Yeah. So um, this this community of of the, these people and then their and their parents or people or loved ones or people in their lives, and so we've been looking for ways to have that translate within our work on stage and not just be something that we do in the classroom, and so. Um, Thanks to some funding from the Virginia and Harvey Kimmel um, education, uh, found, uh, education Fund, which is through the Philadelphia Foundation, we have now, we're now doing this relaxed performance. And um, so on Saturday, May 12th at, at uh, 3 p.m., the performance of Peter and the Starcatcher will be what's called a relaxed performance, which means that those that have any sort of sensory, um, you know, sensitivities, or um, even if you're younger and you're afraid of some of the dark, moments or the extreme loud noises in a play, we will sort of pull them back a bit. Mm. So the house lights will stay on at a low level the entire time. Um, some of the louder cues in the play, we will um, adjust. Some of the shouts that the actors might do that might surprise somebody um, with sensory disorders, they'll kind of be eased in a little mm. bit more so that it just becomes a... Um, a performance that anybody can enjoy, and um, and tip you know we invite anybody to come to that performance. It's not just for people um, yeah. on the spectrum, uh, but um, I think it's a really cool thing. And and, and Theater Eisen's participating in sort of a consortium around town about this, and we you know we've been working with People's Light and some other theaters that also do these relaxed performances. Um, there will be people in the audience that um, will uh, uh, you know raise. Um, their hand when a you know a loud moment is about to begin, so that that they're kind of guides for the um, the people in the audience to sort of understand it, and everybody will get kind of a, a like a packet or an explanation before the show starts, so they so they kind of um, know how the play is is constructed. Oh, wow. um, yeah, so I, I, it's really exciting, and um, we're very 
we're very grateful for the funding to, um, you know, support the tickets because we because we, we want to because we want to give tickets for free to our community, yeah. uh, and so this this um, this funding from Harvey and Virginia has really helped us do that, and also um, helped train the actors because the actors will actually they had a rehearsal today where they go back in and they they adjust some of those moments. So, um, yeah, it's really exciting and we're thrilled to, you know, we're going to, we're thrilled to do it. And, and it's not that, you know, we did, we did a, we did a version of it for one of our kid shows in the fall, the hero school, but now this feels like something in the theater. That's pretty, that's yeah. pretty large. That's a larger step forward. And we're excited to see how that goes and, and think about how that impacts future programming. That's good. I'm glad that there's an option there. Uh, so, uh, back to the production do you have a favorite character that you either uh, love to watch or would love to play? Oh my gosh. Uh, it changes for me. Uh, every time I watch the show, um, I continue to be delighted by Teacher, that mermaid that, yes. um, <laughs> that Mel Crodman plays that, that, that Peter meets in Act 2. Um, she's Whatever she's sniffing, I will have. <laughs> she's having a good old time in life, um, and so well complimented by the um, by the production design too. Yes, yeah, it's such a fun moment when she appears in her and like Jill's costume is so great and the sound. Yeah, and you're right; it's a great moment. Um, you know, I continue to be really moved by Molly and, and Peter, by Leah and Ben's connection and, and performance, and I think it's. Um, all four of them actually the young the young kids in young kids they're not young kids but the, <laughs> they, they play young kids in the show you know I, their bond and their discovery of 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 what what a non traditional family looks like is it really moves me, um, but I, but um you know and then there are moments that where Alf and Bumbreak surprise me or you know and I and I and I get tickled by what what they're doing and um. You know, I talked about Smee and Stash and Kevin Meehan, you know, his his uh, <laughs> his uh, Italian speaking, you know, native uh, island native is really great. And um, and and what Amanda and Mike Riley, the musicians, get, have to do in the show, you know, and sort of playing music one second and hopping up and playing a part another, like the fact that their brains can work that quickly, that is sort of astounds me. So, I mean, I guess I'm just answering everybody that's in the show. <laughs> um, but I really do. Oh, and Johnny, of course, Johnny's. Um, you know, pathos and humanity and yeah. deep, like, love that he brings towards that character, like, moves me so much. So, I, yeah, I don't know. I guess my answer is all of them. Would I like to play any of them? No, I'm much, <laughs> I'm very, I'm much happier being on the other side yeah. of things. Um, although, I would like to be in that mermaid number. It's much be easier really fun. <laughs> to orchestrate a wonderful ensemble. And I, I felt like that, too. Like, I, I would much rather be envious of playing this role than actually yeah. playing this role. Oh, yeah. no, me? I don't know. Yeah, I no, no, no. I, I, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't. No, I'm good where I'm at. <laughs> there is a lot of... Um, have, have you noticed any of the improvisation that uh, was either on the verge or did completely break characters oh yes all the time <laughs> there's this one moment um when oh my god when uh, blackstash um throws this tantrum and he goes over to the bull there's a bulletin board on the set mm -hmm. and he goes over to the bulletin board and he like you know he he takes a 
thumbtack and he stabs the bulletin board and he <laughs> says to Johnny Hobbs' character, he's like, this is your face. This is your face. And he starts to, and when he did that the first time, I mean, I lost it. And you, like, you know, uber professional Johnny Hobbs yes, yes. Jr. Like you just saw like this little <laughs> smile go on his face and he just had to kind of look down. Um, but there's a nature, I mean, I think that's sort of innately built in this show, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you see these people choose to play these parts and you yeah. see this community of, you know, for quote unquote, like mm-hmm. real people pl- tell the stories. So there's always this, there's always an awareness, I think, of the audience that like these are people choosing to play characters. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, not that I welcome actors breaking <laughs> on stage, but, um, but it fits for this but because it fits, yes. they, they already have layers. They're, they're playing, I mean, they are, um, you know, they're still in the basement. Yes, exactly. You know, the whole time. So whether they step out or not, it works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there were definitely this oh serious moment. Uh, Lord Astor is, 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 uh, is shackled. Uh-huh. And yeah, you're right. Stash, uh, Stash has all this that he is saying, like, right in his face. <laughs> and he, he just has this look on his face, like... Eyes a little too bright yep. for the situation yeah. he's in. And I was like, I think he's going to crack. Oh, I mean, John, it's so funny. If you watch that scene, like I've watched that scene a lot, and Johnny never looks at Trey. He just yeah. doesn't look. And he's like, he knows I can't look at him. Yeah. The last scene of the play, too, when there's all the fighting and um, the moment that, I'm going to, spoiler alert, the moment that Stash cuts his hand off mm. in the trunk. Uh, and Mel's character, Mel Smee, comes up and just starts weeping, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, like, Kevin Meehan, who also is, you know, a consummate, prof- consummate professional on stage and never breaks yes. like, yeah. He, you know, you watch him kind of just, like, look away. Especially, you know, now they are used to it, but in the beginning it was mm-hmm. quite funny to see. But, I mean, I love that. I love, I love watching actors surprise other actors and because that surprises us you know the sort of commitment to the choices that they're making and the um i I think it's so i think a play like in a play like this it it really lends itself towards all those elements of surprise and um and delight you know at a a performer performer really finding like (laughs) a sweet spot you know that really works yeah we'll wrap up by asking you what what do you think as uh as artists um, presenting work for audiences, what do you think that we should be thinking about uh, right now as we're presenting, um, you know, works on stage to the public? That's a great question, and I I think um, it is pretty imperative that our that our job be to present stories that are inclusive of of all mm-hmm. and presenting stories that promote bigotry or, um, or exclusion. It, it, it I, I don't, or, or, or is perpetuating stereotypes. Yeah. Um, whether they be, you know, gender stereotypes or, um, um, sexual stereotypes or racial stereotypes. I mean, any of those things to me, there's just no excuse to, to put them on stage anymore. And they're not, you know, our only, you know, I think the power of storytelling is so affecting that that, that we have to we have to be putting the proper messaging out into the world, and yeah. so that to me is, you know, that was a goal that we had with this production is to not is is to present an inclusive world, and 
you know, that, that, that the stories, even these stories that have been around for so long and we think we understand there, you know, some of them really only feel like they're written for certain, for certain yeah. years to hear. Yeah. And I, and I don't think that that's true. And so, um, so I think that's my answer. Yeah. And there are ways to direct some of, some of the, that challenging, those challenging productions for, a, for a present day. But yeah, some of them are just, you know, I, I, I think it's ultimately our search for the urgency of a, of a piece. You know, uh, it's, it's not to say that none of this can never be produced again. It's just saying, well, we have, to, it has to be, we have to think of the lens. Yeah. Uh, that we're that we're um, we're going to be observing this through in this moment. Yeah. Um, for for pretty much everything that we're attempting to tackle, that may have had different meanings when they were uh, when they were first presented. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so uh, if you're listening there and you should still be listening, uh, you should uh, reach into your pocket and uh, sprinkle that uh, star stuff. On <laughs> into the air and fly on over to Theater Horizon to see uh, Peter and the Starcatcher, um, uh, which is running through the 20th. And you can get tickets online by going to theaterhorizon.org. Um, and you can find out there about the relaxed performance it's, if that is your, uh, if you're interested in that. And um, uh, there's some video there, there's some press there that's all, all signs pointing. Uh, to go see this production. Um, Matt, it was a pleasure chatting with you and and uh, kind of returning to the moments of fun that I had in the audience. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's so many there's so many parts of it that you can't wait for. I feel like if I were to bring a friend, I'd be like, you gotta pay attention right here. Not that they wouldn't <laughs> be paying attention, but I'd be like, oh my god, I like this one. <laughs> oh my god, I like this part. Wait, watch, watch. Watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, and I I so appreciate the talk and the conversation. And yeah, the endorsement. So <laughs> thank you so much. Yes. All right, and it's not hard to get to Norristown by any means. No, it's so easy. You just take the train; it goes right there. Yeah, and it's even easier on the weekend if you have a septic. <laughs> but yes, uh, make your way to uh, Theater Horizon for Peter and the Starcatcher. Uh, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you. Rep Radio continues to be inspired by our community and listeners like you. You can support our work through our fiscal sponsor, Fractured Atlas, and through our Patreon page. Visit repradio.org slash donate for more. Stay tuned. You know the rest. (laughs) 